this is a topic obviously pretty near and dear to my heart. Um, this is, this is probably the topic of my life, of my career is why bother, right? With this building Jewish community thing. Why go through all the trouble to do what it takes to have a Jewish community that's going to thrive, do all the, um, all the work, all the organizing, all the fundraising that it takes to make this happen. And, um, so what I can say is that my life is an answer to that question. Um, I truly, honestly am, um, as Bert has heard me say a few times, a holy roller about this topic. I'm not a holy roller about much, but about this one, I'm a true believer. Uh, and first of all, I come from a Jewish day school background. So I'm someone who grew up as a kid. I went to the um, Atlanta Jewish Community Center for preschool. So my preschool experience was an AJCC, and then uh, I went to Jewish day school. And out of that day school experience, I chose to go on to Yeshiva High School, an Orthodox Jewish high school, um, until I left in 10th grade, which is another lecture. Um and that experience coupled with my leaving Jewish life for a while uh, at, at about 16, which is when I came out. So that's that was the big rupture for me with the kind of Judaism I was um, immersed in at an Orthodox high school. It was a very painful rupture. And it left a gaping hole at the center of my universe that was absolutely devastating to me. Then I got on with life and did, you know, the other things that you do as a teenager and um, and was okay and whatever, had some other things going on, went to college at Northwestern and started toying around with the Jewish community a little bit, had experiences that said, okay, I, this is why I don't do this. I'm done with this for another year. Um, and then... Eventually found my way to a reconstructionist congregation after I graduated college when I moved back home to Atlanta and um, found my way to a reconstructionist synagogue. So I have had the experience of having Jewish communal life be central to my understanding of the world and my own self-definition, having no Judaism whatsoever, no Jewish community in my life. Baruch Hashem. And um, coming back and experiencing what having it again was like. So when I say I'm a true believer, it's because I've experienced what it is to be immersed in this kind of a community, what it is to be without that, and the way that it can completely redefine our relationship to our contemporary world when we come back. Why? So, so what's it about? If I unpack all that, what's that about? For me, I believe one of the greatest challenges to our children being happy, not successful, not wealthy, not connected, not high achieving, one of the biggest issues about them being happy is the amount of isolation that we all deal with in the way we've constructed life, uh, in America 2015 and the way that we are just cut off from naturally engaging with one another, the sense that we, we, like we do everything we're supposed to do, we get through the to-do list, we get through whatever we can of it, there's still some left over and then we try really hard to, okay, I'm going to get some sleep because i got to get up tomorrow, so I'm going to sleep, I'm going to sleep really well so I can be ready for tomorrow and we're still checking the device until we go to sleep and then we wake up and the first thing we do is we reach for that device to see what we have to get done now. And we haven't even, right, so I'm not suggesting that other people in the history of the universe have not gone to bed feeling like there's a lot to do and tired. We go to bed tired like from the neck up. We're exhausted and our body is shot from the amount of cortisol, right, that keeps getting dumped into it with every, oh my God, I forgot to answer that email. Like, oh no, I forgot, what time do I have to pick what time do I have to pick her up today? LAUSD. Tuesday. It's Tuesday. What time do they get out of school on Tuesday? Right? So all those oh no moments, all of them dump cortisol directly into our bloodstream. So our bodies are shot by the end of the day and our brains, we are absolutely fried, but we are not tired in that way that leads to a really healthful, deep 
healing, restorative rest and sleep. So this is what our kids are growing up in times like, however you feel, you know, what they're exposed to and what they're going to be exposed to because the rate of change is picking up. The rate of technology is speeding up at a rate that is like, it's like this, the past times the past, not just adding, right? It's now to the like 10th degree. My pediatrician explained this to me, right, about my daughter's brain and why sometimes it's working the way it is or not working the way it isn't. So um, that's only going to get more. And so what happens in that model is that so many of the ways that we experience true happiness come from belonging, come from mattering, come from meaning something to to a, a group of people with whom we regularly associate. Not from achieving within that group. That is ve- so if they go to school, yes, they have a school community, you know, wherever they are. That's that's great. If they're in the orchestra, yes, they have the orchestra community. That's great. So a lot of what happens in those communities for our kids is about achieving. When they walk into this building, Nothing they do is about achieving. If they achieve, we get to celebrate that with them. But that is not the point. When they walk into this building, everyone is happy to see them because they're ours. This is one of the few places they will ever walk in. And no matter what they're doing, they're ours. And we love them and celebrate them because they're ours. Belonging is a key component we know of health. A sense of belonging to a family is where it starts, right? And to a small group of people around that family that is that family's um, support system and their their connections. As as we grow, we also need to experience belonging to something other than our families of origin. We need to feel like we belong to the world in a certain way. And our kids, when they come here, they experience belonging to the Jewish people. So they may not have ever seen somebody who's here, but what they know that they can't know intellectually yet, but that they experience is that whoever that person is, (laughs) what does that say to you? (laughs) Just, just saying. Really? I think it says something about the power of the presentation <laughs> and the truth, the veracity of everything being spoken. So yes, thunder and lightning in, in our community is a wonderful thing. There is a blessing for that. And because we've not had rain in a long time, what would we say together with our kids, with our littlest ones? <gasps> it's rain. We don't, we haven't had rain in a very long time. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Shechianu Bekiemanu Begianu Lazman Hazeh. That we thank the source of life for giving us life, that we're alive today, and that we stayed alive long enough to see rain in Pacific Palisades. When we see a rainbow, there is a blessing that we say, Baruch Ata Adonai Zocher Habrit. Blessed are you, God, who remembers the covenant. Why does that matter? Because it, it teaches them a Jewish framework for every experience they're going to have in the world and sanctifying their awareness of that experience. Are we sanctifying rainbows? No. Rainbows are already sacred. They're already holy, right? Just by being this miraculously awesome thing that happens when light gets refracted through, right, the wetness in the sky. So just because we have a scientific explanation, right, doesn't make it less holy, less amazing, less fantastic. They're blessing their ability to be aware of that. They're blessing the experience of rainbow. And they're doing that together in the language that our people have always used to do that. That is a connection beyond that one experience, right? It's a connection to every other Shehechianu moment. Like, oh, a deer, Shehechianu, right? So they, they start associating those moments and they know that 
Jews everywhere else are also sanctifying their experiences with that blessing, as have Jews throughout history. So this is the other thing that I think is so important about a Jewish identity. It doesn't just locate them connected and belonging in in the right now to whoever's here, but it's to people way beyond this room, right? They'll learn that later. I know that that's not a concept a three-year-old has, but the three-year-old knows they're Jewish and they're part of, right, Jewish and part of the Jewish people. Eventually, they learn there are Jews in Australia, right? And they they make that connection that I somehow must be connected to somebody in Australia. So there's somebody in the sanctuary I don't know, but I'm part of the Jewish people, so I'm connected to them somehow. Same with the Jew in Australia. So they belong to our world in a different way and a sense of belonging in the world in a different way. And the Shecheyana, we just said, it has been said for centuries. And so they also belong to a stream of peoplehood that isn't dependent on right now. They belong to history. They belong to something bigger than right now. They belong to a grand scheme, right, of approaching the world that's all about seeing all of it as sacred and having responses ready to go to that experience. So that sense of truly belonging, um, I think, is critical now more than ever um, as a way to inoculate our kids against the sense of loneliness and being cut off, and we're in our cars and we're running our errands and we're on our things, but do we ever really feel like we belong um, that we belong. All right. So belonging is a huge, a huge one. Believing. So Mordechai Kaplan was the one who said, belonging comes before believing and believing comes before behaving. So belonging, then once you know you're part of this people, then, then they're also exposed to what that means this people is about. What do we believe? We believe that, and again, some of this is directly spoken, a lot of it is their experience, right, in our ECC of the way we do everything, the way we talk about everything, and it just kind of gets soaked up by them at their appropriate developmental level. So what do we believe? We believe that everything is an expression of the one, capital O, right? So everything is an expression of the divine, everything. Everything intrinsically is holy, Everything, Kedusha, right, holiness, the sacred being present everywhere is a really important concept. The way that we trash the planet right now doesn't happen when you understand the planet as sacred. And now it's hailing. So how much do you all not want to mess with it? (laughs) They predicted that today. All right. Well, there you go. Um, So that includes this idea of holiness, especially is about um, that every human being is created B'Tselem Elohim in the image of the divine. Every single human being is an expression of the divine. What that translates into is a certain way of understanding it's okay and not okay to treat everybody. You don't have to like everybody. You don't have to agree with everybody. But everybody, right, is created B'Tselem Elohim. Every human being is created in the image of the divine. And therefore, like, it means we behave in certain ways because we believe that. So belonging, right, believing, behaving, they're, of course, all linked, um, and they reinforce each other. So a sense of kadusha about the environment, about the planet, about experience, about other human beings, that we are charged with protecting other forms of life, right? That that's a sacred responsibility, according to Judaism, is something I love teaching our kids because they get it. They don't hear the language of sanctification anywhere but here. 
naturally. Right? They, they don't, they aren't exposed to the idea that things are sacred and holy unless you're in a religious or spiritual context. Some people don't find that valuable. Okay, that's fine. Many of us believe it is critical. It is a way that we satisfy a part of ourselves that longs to be in touch with the sacred and to understand sacred time that we mark together, the cycle of the year, rituals that sanctify Shabbat, right? That lighting Shabbos candles, you know, whether people are religiously observant in anything else doesn't matter. It's not about how much you do. It's about there's a hunger to connect with that. And that's a natural part of their experience here. And and because of that, they're not imposters when they want to try any of that stuff later. So right now my daughter's saying, well, mom, I, I just don't believe that God created the world. I'm really sorry, but I just don't believe that. Right? And I'm like, okay. Right? I don't believe a thinking being like Zap created the world either. Well, I don't believe God created it in any kind of a way. I said, I don't either. You know, I believe that the Big Bang and everything about it, right, is also an expression of this amazing we don't knowness called God. Well, I don't call it God. I said, that's fine. So why, why do I bring that up? Because I could panic, right? Like, oh no, her bat mitzvah's in, you know, two years. Like, like this, this is bad. On the other hand, she's had fluency with God language long enough and has had enough examples of it that when she reaches a certain age, she'll get it that her mom is a rational thinking, scientifically oriented human being and a rabbi. So there must be something she's missing. And then she'll be able to reconstruct a God concept that does work for her or that doesn't, right? But but if she's never been exposed to that as normative, she can't reclaim it or reconstruct it later. So by lighting Shabbos candles every Friday morning, right, or wherever, downstairs at Friday morning, when if you do it at home, whatever, we empower our children to understand that as our communal rituals marking the sacred, and they won't feel like imposters if they want to decide, oh, you know what, I'm going to... I'm gonna, now I'm getting married, I'm gonna experiment with lighting Shabbos candles at my table. Okay. It's something they remember. It's something they had an original connection to that's theirs. We get one opportunity to give our children a Jewish identity. And that's now. We can't go back later and impose it on who they've become. If they reject it, there is absolutely nothing we can do about that other than continue to celebrate them for who they are. Right? Okay. I'm not saying it's a guarantee, right, of a strong Jewish identity, a Jewish start in a Jewish preschool, but it's the best shot we have at it. And this is the only time we can give them that. My daughter argues, why do I have to learn Hebrew? None of my enemies have to learn Hebrew. And I'm like, because it's my job to give you certain things that I can't give you later and that would be really hard or impossible for you to to acquire as an adult. One of those is a fluency with Hebrew. Because let me tell you, honey, certain parts of your brain are going to start to shut down, right? As your brain specifies, as it's supposed to, but the capacity to learn that language like that is not going to be there. And so it's my job to give it to you. It's your job to figure out what you're going to do with it. So what you're giving them is something you can only give them now, right? Original, honest, experiences of Jewish identity and integrity. Courtney? I can take one now. I do. Right. So I think one of the most important things is that we become comfortable and fluent in 
and religious or spiritual language of integrity for us. So I can only ever speak out of my feelings about this and model that and expose my child, right, to my understanding that this is a sacred experience or, you know, or, or a godly experience, a God moment. Um, you know, we, I often say, you're God's guy, right? When that's that, that sky that just stops you in your tracks, you know, it's like God's guy. Um, so she knows that those experiences for me are about the ultimate. I don't, I don't think we can explain anything about what that is to a four-year-old because first of all, we don't know. We don't get it. It's not about explaining, right? It's about modeling how wonderful that is for you to feel that sense of connection, right, to this invisible reality, capital R. Um, Rabbi Harold Kushner was talking to his daughter one night when he was putting her to bed and she said something about, but if I can't see God, you know, how do I know God is there and how do I, you know, and so it, this goes on for a while and he says to her, touch my love. And she said, like, what? I can't touch your love, right? Well, but how do you know I love you? Well, because I know that. I experience that essentially, right, in her language. Um, and, and it's the same thing, right, that I experience godly moments you know, and I can articulate my experience, right? I can't explain love to my daughter. I, it's a mystery to me. Um, but I show her all the time, right, how wonderful love is, right? And how real it is between us. And it's about finding language and finding experiences where that's ha- where that happens and where it's articulated. And articulated Jewishly, right? So blessings are a great way that we do that. You know, that we articulate the sacred without having to, like, come up with language, which is one of, one of the beautiful things you give your kids by, by marinating them in a tradition, is that they have a framework already in place. They have a toolbox already in place to be able to express something without having to come up with it, right? If it's hailing, Shecheyanu is right there for them. And that's a normative instinct for them to recite a bracha. So it's about in, it's about um, inculcating them with a sense of gratitude. That's the other thing that I think is the is the antidote to one of the poisons of our time, right? Affluenza, you know, and our grabbing it. You know, we always have to have more. We always have to have the newest iPhone, and you know, we have to if forget repairing something, throw it away, like get a new one. Get on Amazon to you know Prime two day free shipping. It's here in two days. You know, and, and so we just we just acquire, 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 or get, 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 take, take, take. We, we, and this is how we're oriented to the world, and it keeps us in a constant state of anxiety, a constant state of lack. That's what the industries all work to, to, to put in you is a deep anxiety around lack, or why would you buy, right? So in a consumer-based culture, we are constantly being told we're not enough, we don't have enough, and if we have, and th- then we need to be shown how that was last year's fashion <laughs> that was enough, right? You don't have anything from this year's line. Th- that is an existential, <laughs> that is a, that is an existential heart and mindset, right, that doesn't lead to a sense of fulfillment. And so, giving our kids a sense of belonging to a religious tradition that has at its core a sense of gratitude for the abundance all around us and words to express that and to sanctify our awareness of that and our awareness of all that we have is a wonderful cure, right, to this this constant gnawing sense of not having or being enough. And that's that's another thing. Enough. Dai. We have a word, dayenu, from the Seder. Yes? Dayenu. It would have been enough for us. Right? The first one first words my daughter learned was dai. Right? It's just like enough. We we don't allow in our culture, especially in the upper middle class to upper class, we don't allow our kids to just be enough. They have to be the best. They have to be gifted. They have to be super talented. 
And it needs to be at an instrument and a sport and academia and math and science and show an aptitude for something we don't even know what to call yet. They have to be great at everything. They have to be super achievers at everything. We don't ask our pediatricians how well they throw a basketball. We don't care. They're great doctors, right? We we want a great doctor. We really don't care how they play field hockey. But we expect our children to be great at everything coming up. Maybe not at your stage, right? But coming up, they're supposed to be great at everything and do everything exceedingly well. This is crushing our children, crushing them. Why do you think the Hunger Games is so popular? I was horrified when I learned the premise of the Hunger Games. I loved the book. I read them all. I loved the film. I sat with the woman, Nina Jacobson, who bought the rights to make that film over lunch because I was so distressed. And I said, you got to talk. You got to talk me off the ledge. I said, I, I loved the books. I loved your film. I do not understand why our children love a book or got past page five of a book that starts with they are randomly chosen by lot to be thrown into a re- in an arena and to fight each other to the death until one is left. Why is, yeah, I get Katniss is a great character. That's not my point. My point is why are these kids crazy for this book? And we talked 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 and we just could not get me there. And I said, I just, I, I, I'm just, I don't, I'll leave it, I'll leave it alone, but I'm still, and she finally looked at me and she said, Rabbi, our kids feel like they are in the teeth of the buzzsaw. I was like, got it. Lights came on, got it. They are crushed by the pressure. I see them in seventh grade in my office as they're preparing for bar and bat mitzvah, and I cannot tell you how many of them crack. Quietly, privately, fall apart on my sofa. Because it's just one thing now too much. They were handling it all, right? Until you add the last six months of preparation for Bar Bar Mitzvah. It tells me they're under a huge amount of strain and stress because they're not allowed to just be enough. And we come from a tradition that says every single child has their unique path to serving the world and serving their own potential and our job that we are tasked with, that we are privileged with, by being lent these little people, they're not ours. They are lent to us so that we get the great sacred privilege of helping them figure out what that is and exposing them and encouraging them at what they love and they find real satisfaction and excitement and f- fulfillment in doing so that they that they live into their own unique path and their potential. That is often a really windy path. I'm reading the book, Excellent Sheep, right? We're great at sending them through the hoops and they learn really quickly how to jump those hoops. But that relegates them to like three career paths if they go to Ivy League schools. It doesn't lead to, the author said, things like the clergy, right? But it doesn't lead to create... It doesn't lead to a lot of really wonderful ways of living one's life that comes only after this really tortured, circuitous route that leads through failure, right? And and wandering and trying this and trying that. And we just don't have a lot of tolerance for that. We're so anxious for them to succeed and for the world out there that's changing so fast that we, we heap all of that onto them and don't let them be, die. It, they're enough. Just the way they are. In Hebrew, there is no word for have. You know, I don't have a child. It's yesh li yelda. I, there is to me a girl. There is to me a daughter. Meaning there is, she, she is. And then there's a relationship to me, right? But it isn't I have. She doesn't belong to me. We, she is, she is her own Creature in relationship to the universe and our job that we are privileged to have is to help them find um, language for and experiences of and expectations around values and characteristics that lead to people who are 
confident, who are persistent, who are optimistic, right? Who are kind, who are compassionate, who can hold a lot of um, space around an argument, right? For us, debate is a sport. What does that mean? In this world right now, it is critical that we develop little humans who can tolerate disagreement. Anymore, you find out somebody has one position on Israel, somebody has the other, you stop talking. We can't, we're not great right now at tolerating, at holding a lot of disagreement and understanding how someone else might see it even if we don't agree with their position. This is one of the great contributions of Judaism to the world discussion, like humanities discussion, is you take a page of Talmud, you get a huge collection of arguments. The Talmud is a bunch of arguments. Rabbis across the generations arguing until there's a vote of the majority and the halakha, the Jewish law, always goes according to the majority. Always. And after you get the majority opinion, and here's how the law is going to go, it's going according to Rabbi Meir, whose opinion was that it's black. You get, and Rabbi Yochanan's opinion was that it was white. And here's why, right? So immediately after the majority opinion and the decision's made, you get the minority opinion because they understood times could change. And then Rabbi Yochanan's argument might be the majority opinion. Why do I say that's an important thing? Because I really see too much breaking down across this country, across the world, between right, wrong, conservative, liberal, religious, not religious. It's The discussion has lost depth because we don't listen to each other. Once you you tell me you're X, I'm Y. So so the conversation stops. Or we argue, but not in a way where we we actually hear across those lines. So our kids grow up to be people who can tolerate a lot of different opinions, right? And a lot of different views and a lot of different ways of looking at things. And they're taught that other people's have their religious traditions and have their way of celebrating sacred time just like we do. We are not an imperialist religion. By giving our kids a Jewish identity, we teach them the way I look at the world and the way I express those things is of extraordinary value. And so I know something about how you must value your Christmas tree. That must be really fun for y'all. That must be really nice to have a tree in your living room in the winter. It's so pretty. Right? They, they understand they can relate to the beauty of other people's traditions without any need to make somebody else's wrong. That is another capacity we don't have nearly enough of in this world in terms of our citizens, right? An ability to appreciate our own, you know, traditions and our own, um, religious language for things and, and sense of reality as well as, um, honor other peoples who are different from us and the way they do it. Yes, ma'am. Repeating those values again, too. You said compassionate, compassion, confidence, humanity. I'm not sure what I said. Um, (laughs) Persistence, optimism, honesty, kindness, compassion, flexibility, tenacity, right? I, I can list a bunch, and I'm not saying they're exclusive to Judaism. We have language around them, rituals around them, texts and stories around them that fill them out and build for our young people a scaffold, right, that's in place. It's a tradition and values against which they can judge anything that comes at them from the world. Once those are in place, right, uh, Jewish values are in place, and, and it's bigger than just them or their school, it's... It's Judaism through the ages, these amazing teachers and minds and texts and um, and communities who have lived in alignment with those values for thousands of years. They're time-tested. They're not dependent on what's going to happen 20 years from now. The same way there's, the skills our kids are going to need could be completely changed in 20 years at the rate things are going, right? We can't really prepare them with skills. Some skills, you know, maybe. But who who thought in my lifetime, and y'all are younger than me, so I was going to say in our lifetime, but I'm older than you, um, that that really handwriting would not be so necessary. 
They, they don't, you know, when I was like, my kid's handwriting is atrocious. I went to her teacher to say, does she need physical therapy? Like, she holds the pen like a, a, like a, a monk. I'm like, what, monkey, what is that? Like, and she's like, you know, we can work with her a little bit, but frankly, don't worry about it. Like, they're going to be typing. And so we can't even predict, right, what the skills set that they'll need will be in 20 years. What, what we do know is that there are values and characteristics, ethics, morals, right, that we want in place and a rich vocabulary around because those don't ever go out of fashion. And if they do, then I want us to be the minority that's left. I don't want to be part of the majority culture, right, that doesn't believe, you know, compassion and honesty you know, are, are values that, that we should live into. Um, so having a rich vocabulary for that, a, sac- a sacred vocabulary for that, um, holidays that help lift those up. Hanukkah ain't nothing more about optimism than Hanukkah, right? You ain't got enough oil to last one day, but you're going to trust it's going to last for eight, right? Um, it's the darkest moon of the darkest time of the year. Yom Kippur, that the whole community says I'm sorry, to each other on the same day? Well, if you set it up that it's happening on that day, it's so much more likely to happen. Now you sanctify it and call it the holiest day of our year, owning our mistakes, saying I'm not perfect. These kids have so much pressure to be perfect, right? When they see grown-ups admitting they're not perfect and asking each other, confessing out loud, everybody saying these things, it's an incredibly powerful thing. And so f- to have that always in place as the world bombards them with stuff they're going to have to weigh and figure out, when they're doing that with that structure already in place, there's a confidence to those kids. There's a solid center to those young people who are ready to go out and engage because they, they trust, right, what's at the core. Because they've seen it, they've heard it, they've celebrated it, they've sung it, right, they've drawn pictures about it, Um and and for me, it's one of the best ways we can send them out into the world secure. And here they are. So I will stop talking to see if there's anything you want to add or ask or explore. I wanted to add that yesterday I was having a conversation with some friends, and I, I said that my new uh, theory is that the happiest people are those who pray the most. And it doesn't matter how you pray what religion, where you are, how you do it. But I'm convinced the happiest people are those who pray a lot. And in that conversation, there was like a Jew, a Catholic, a Buddhist, a this, a that. I mean, we were all from, you know, an atheist. And and we all seem to agree that, um, and we talked about, you know, tough times, a friend just lost her husband and and um, and here I am with like young little kiddos and just starting out and um, that that sense of belonging that, that we each had in many different ways you know some of them they one was saying you know I wake up in the morning and I sit in the bathroom and I pray and before I go to bed at night I, I go back to the bathroom and I pray and I'm thinking <laughs> all places and I'm thinking well I go to the bluffs twice a day and that's where I do my thing um, but what we all shared in common was that sense that that feeds us that sense so um, and where it started for me even though I was not raised in the Jewish traditions I was raised uh, with prayer and um, the fact that my mommy said prayers to me every single night what meant the world to me and what was when I then branched out and did my own thing and became my own little person I was able to find that again I was able to find in my own way but I that connection that I had from a very young age that comfort that I had was something that I could always go to right and that's what I hear from what you're saying which is so important That's if we right. don't share anything at all with them, it's much harder, like you said, it's much harder to learn Hebrew when you're an adult than when you're a kid. And it's much harder to learn 
anything. to say a prayer in response to mm-hmm. something when you're older because you feel like a fraud. You feel like you're faking it, right? If our kids never choose to do it again, okay. But if they ever want to, or if they want to keep doing it, that would be great. Um, but, but if they don't and they want to come back to it, it's already inherently and intrinsically theirs as a natural mode of expressing you know, the need to connect to that, which is beyond the world of consuming goods and services or producing goods and services, which is what we're about so much of the time right now that we use one part of our brain and we don't nurture the side that's the poet. Right? Religious language is poetry. Like, you know, the part of us that, that is nourished by a beautiful piece of music or walking through an art gallery, right? That, that's the part of our souls that are suffering deprivation right now. And the hunger for ways to nurture and connect to that, I think, is profound. Sorry, just going off of what you just said, I'm curious, and this might be a question for Julie, but I don't know, obviously you guys are in cahoots. <laughs> you might have the answer. Um, what, when you all sit and you talk about the ECC and its approach, like I understand that they're learning the holidays and the traditions and the prayers, but what conversation about God is in the classroom? And the, and the reason why I ask is because mm-hmm. I don't know the answer. <laughs> and I started this thing recently with my son where when we go to bed, we just say five things that we're grateful for, which is hilarious. Um, and I was talking with Amanda. He got at a birthday party, your son's birthday party. He went and got Amanda because her son got sick and my son, the, the ever the humble one, said, I am grateful that today I did a mitzvah. <laughs> I got Hudson's mommy when he was sick. <laughs> okay, we need to talk about being humble, but yes, we did a mitzvah. But then he said, which I was like so surprised because I don't, which is sad, but I don't talk to him about God at home ever. And then he said twice, like two nights in a row, he said something like, I'm grateful that God makes the beautiful flowers and all the beautiful things in the world. And it totally struck me. I'm like, I'm like, is God in the room? <laughs> How does he know about God? And I've been meaning to ask the teachers this week, and I've not done it yet. But is that something that you guys go into the school year with an approach about? And I also ask the question, because I know some of the teachers aren't Jewish in the ECC. So what is the sort of like fundamental curriculum approach to that subject? And it, or is it even addressed? So that you you do need to ask Julie about curriculum. Okay. I know that it's it's normative that ECC kids are exposed right to to God language, which is not something they hear other places. Which is kind of what makes it kind of like whoa, right? A little jarring yeah. is because it's not necessarily part of normative language somewhere else, but here it is. So in the curriculum, you know, in terms of what's actually you know part of the lesson, I. I honestly don't know, but know that it's normative to use God language here. You mentioned uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner before. He wrote a wonderful book, short book called When Children Ask About God. And if you're struggling with that and you're you're struggling with what to say and how to deal with it, it is a wonderful, wonderful book. And two of the points he makes that I've always found very interesting is... Harold Kushner. Harold Kushner, Rabbi Harold Kushner. She wrote uh, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People and uh, To Life, which is a wonderful, wonderful book about uh, about Judaism. Um, Two points he he makes that I think are important. One is that children can deal with God concepts a lot more easily than adults can. And one of the things he he was talking talking about, I I guess it was his daughter or his son, and said, well, you know, you can't see God, but God is there. And he said to his, I guess it was daughter, what can you think of that you can't see, but you know it's there? And she said, the wind. It was obvious, it was simple. Okay, You, you can see the effect of it, but you can't see wind. Uh, the other piece is that he, he said that God concepts change as the rest of our intellectual growth change. And a lot of the problems a lot of people have is they learn the three-year-old God and then they get to be seven. (laughs) And they don't learn the seven-year-old God or they learn the seven-year-old God. Then they get to be a teenager. Then they get to be an adult. And they're still thinking that God is the three-year-old 
explanation of God. Or that that's what we mean when we say yeah, it. Yeah, it's a, it's, a one, it's, it's a wonderful book. I think he's a Reconstructionist. He, yeah, um, Mordechai Kaplan was his teacher. Right. Was Kushner's right. teacher. And it's, not, it's not a theological book, but it's a really, really uh, wonderful book. Uh, I can share my experience as a kid you know, the concept of God was instilled in me. I remember uh, my teacher uh, asked this question, where do you think planet Earth came from? Where did, you know, human beings come from? Where did, how did the sky was made? How, how, were, how were the stars made? It? So that power that puts it all together, we, could, we call that God. And, you know, he made it that large. I mean, it was big and beyond. So that instilled it in me and then I remember years ago I read in a Discover magazine about Einstein who he did believe that there is God just because who made you know the galaxy and la 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 I don't know if you can get uh, get a copy of that it's, it was years ago but Einstein finally at the end of his life he did correct me if I'm wrong but he did believe that there is a God um, I think you're right science can tell us what and how but it cannot tell us why. Yeah. And the why is where our rabbis go. <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, I wanted to tell you when you mentioned, like, how do I talk to my kids about God? That in the Ethan Hugh Library, there's a whole section of books. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and the blue section yeah. is J-U-D and then oh. G-D. Okay. And that's probably some of the language that your kids are learning because those are the books that the teachers use to read to the kids. So... They're really easy. They're picture books. And There's a lot of them. That's great. I feel like I avoid talking to yeah. about God because, you know, like Laurie, just like I, I converted and I grew up Christian. It was like there was Jesus. And that was like what they described to us. And that obviously never seemed real to me because, Jewish. huh? Jesus was Jewish. Well, Jesus was Jewish, but like, well, you don't learn that when you're in Sunday school. But, you know what I mean? and, but it was always very odd to me. But that was just like their explanation for everything. So... There are situations that I come into where I feel like God could come into the conversation, but I just kind of avoid it because I'm like, ooh, how do I explain that? You know what I mean? Like, so I'm glad to know that there are some books and stuff, but I do feel skittish, I think, in a way, about trying to explain God to a four-year-old. I mean, I would like to pray with her at night. Like, I did do that as a kid, and when they were babies and they were infants, and I would pray out loud as I was rocking them to sleep, and in my own, I was Jewish then, obviously, in my own Jewish way, I would do that, but, like, is that Jewish if I sit down and I pray with God before, you know what I mean? Like, I, I guess I'm a little confused sometimes as a convert, like, is that okay to, like, well, pray to God at night before you could say the shema. It's actually required. It's not only not a Traditionally, it's required. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should, right but we should, we should schedule another conversation about exactly those kinds of places where there's kind of a rub between: is this authentically Jewish? Right, right, right. Right? Is it? You know, and because of course, holding your child and praying, of course, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and I could understand where it's like: okay, wait a minute, am I importing this from somewhere else? Is this authentic? And. And even for Jews, like Jews who have never necessarily even had that kind of a desire until they held their infant and rocked them to sleep. I know, I want to, but it's like at the same time as Vivi's class down in the ECC. But I I think that's a, it's a, it's a conversation we should 100% explore. And the Shema is a beautiful place to start. And there's, um, there's books that you can, if you just want to start with a little, it's a little book, um, about Shema, saying the Shema at night. Right? And you read it with your kid. And so it's like, and then you start getting into it enough that like, then you can just do the Shema and, you know, like, but it's a lovely way in. They make it for very little children so that it's a way to start saying Shema together at night, which is a beautiful practice. And do you think I can remember the name of the book? There's also, there's a wonderful, one of the traditional prayers before going to bed at night is a prayer of forgiveness, which says, I hereby forgive everybody who may have hurt me during the day. I'm sorry for everything I might have Does everyone know Bert Kleinman, who is our <laughs> our religious practices chair? He's on the board of directors and is our religious practices chair person. Um, it's like so interesting if we're going to get deep about it in a second is that, you know, I grew up 
I love you. Well, I'm just giggling because I love you so much. No, but it's really interesting because, you know, growing up Christian, like, we have the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. um, and there are things, like, I still recite the Lord's Prayer, but I've learned to translate it in the Jewish terms for me. Mm -hmm. So instead of, um, you know, Lord, you know, I say, Mother, Father, God, um, you know, I thank you for, and I go and I just make it this, like, Jewish thing for me, but mm -hmm. I say the same things, and it's like they say, um, those who uh, trust, transgress trans, against me, right, and, you know, you? and I say, no, but I say, you know, forgive those who have transgressed against me and, and, and those who have transgressed against, but I just, like, change it into my own Jewish terms, because it really, it's such a, it embodies, like, everything we think as Jewish people, but sure. I just don't say the Jesus well, and to your point is that is that that does emerge out of, you know, the, the Jewish concepts. I mean, right. absolutely. That's it's a very Jewish prayer right. that gets attributed to Jesus, who then becomes Lord. You know, so it's it's very Jewish in terms of what it's saying. Like Bert said, the Shema Amita, the Shema that we say when we go to bed is that we forgive everyone who's done something, you know, against me, you know, today, and um, and may only my good dreams come true. <laughs> So what, I, so what I say is, I. Well, and so, so I always say I don't believe in God. I experience God. So the difference is, there's not something I have to leap across to believe, even though I know it doesn't really exist. But I, right, it, it's that. That mystery, the gorgeousness, the cap mystery capital M at the heart of experience, I, that I choose to name God. I choose to sacralize that. That's my choice. It's not a choice to believe. It's a choice to name what we experience as sacred. Therefore, as, right, this term that we've come to use about it, which is that it is of God. Does that make sense? I'm not having to step outside of of anything that my scientific mind knows and trusts to be true, to say, and there are elements to this whole business that we do not comprehend through reason, through experiment like with, you know, matter and speed and velocity and, you know, whatever. You know, it's, it's about a response to Mozart. But you, you can't analyze a response to beauty, to nature. I choose to sanctify it. With God language. For little kids, it like decreases the stress of stressful situations if you're if you do use God language with them, because then when somebody in the family dies, there's hope. Exactly. And they're able to hold a much larger understanding of their things we do not see that are nonetheless real and impact us, right? And so, and it's a, it doesn't mean I have to know any more when someone dies about anything. I just have a a bigger space in which to hold a lot of things. Well, I was just going to say that in this conversation about God, like I'm still grappling with how I feel about God, but to your point about belonging, like my entire life, I would say until now, I had, I was lost, like totally lost. But the one thing that was constant was that I was Jewish. And my parents 
were not religious, we were reformed, but we did every holiday, we had the values, we had the morals of being Jewish, and I would say that is the one constant in my life until now. And I was bought mitzvahs in Israel, even though we weren't religious, but this was like cool for my parents to do, and they took us to Europe after, and, but I studied, and I had a tutor, and I learned Hebrew, and now coming back and like giving it to my son, and knowing the prayers, and knowing the language, and my husband being Jewish, and knowing the language growing up, like, I have to say the belonging part of it is what is so important to me, and like just to your point, like I, I feel so good that I'm giving that to my son, and mm -hmm. to both of my sons, but yeah, I mean, I feel like the God thing is like, that's for anyone to decide, and to just continue to communicate and discuss and debate about, but the belonging and the being Jewish is like the one thing that I can say is, has been the constant. And so you've articulated beautifully the power of that, right, in, in one's life as a consistency, right, as an identity, and what that gives one in the world, and now giving it to your child, you get it that that's the only way to impart it, is to give them those Jewish experiences very, very young and continuously. That that's their frame through which they understand identity, right, is a Jewish uh, identity. And my bet is, it isn't, just, forget for the believing piece, we'll just stick that in the middle, but the belonging piece, my bet is, has influenced behavior for you, right? For me, absolutely. Belonging has impacted behaving for you, I bet. Because out of those morals, out of those values, right, we make certain choices about how we vote, about how we spend or don't spend our money, about what causes we support, about, you know, like, yeah. what, what, what responsibility we feel to do X, Y, or Z about the world or the environment, right, the, that that belonging not only has an internal amazing capacity to hold us in a crazy, ever-changing world and give us a positive identity, but it's associated with positive things and, like I said earlier, a framework whereby we measure everything. Should I vote yes or no on prop whatever? Rick? Yeah. And, and that is... Where am I coming from? Where am I coming from? What's my orientation yeah. to the world? And what's my language for talking about that? Well, I, I do think you were talking about talking about God and God language, and again, going back to Rabbi Kushner's book, uh, many people don't do it because it does open a can of worms. And it's not just this, you don't get to choose all the God talk. You, know, you can say, oh, gee, God is everywhere, and you know, this is beautiful, and etc. and then you get the question, well, Johnny is sick, and does that mean God doesn't like him? Or we're praying, you know, we prayed for somebody to get better, that means that God can heal that person, but if that person's not being healed, does that mean God doesn't hear my prayer? And so, again, I go back to the Kushner book because he deals with all of these issues that it's not just talking about God. It's also being able to deal with all the other stuff in the Jewish tradition and having a view because a lot of people are turned off by God and God talk because of things that were said to them. I mean, I go, you know, this happened and the, it, it rained and all these people died. Or like, you know, maybe they saw something on TV or there was a big train crash. How could God let that happen? But I don't have the answer, but I do. <laughs> no, but when I'm saying a three I do. But for a I hundred percent do. a three year old answer. So there's there's a wonderful piece by Rabbi Harold Schulweiss called Adonai Elohim, right? That there are different aspects, and one is that there is a universe with its own rules, and one of them is that cancer cells, right, replicate really quickly and kill human beings. That's just that's just that's what is, and same with train wrecks. There are mechanical parts that fail on a train, or a human being makes a decision to text while they're driving a train, right, and people are killed. For me, it is very clear that I always talk in terms of that is not about God. That The universe is what it is. It's put together the way it's put together. And tsunamis happen, right? So that's not about God. Where I find God is in what is the meaning of my response to the train wreck or to the tsunami. You know, 30% of the people who helped in Nepal were Israelis. 30%. A third of the people who responded to the tragedy in Nepal were Israelis. Doctors, nurses, technicians, right? 
boots on the ground right away. That's a Jewish response to what is my holy, sacred, godly responsibility is to get on a plane and get over there as fast as I can because I have the ability to make a difference, right? That compassionate response, that's where the godliness is for me. That's where God is for me and that. The, the the way things happen in the world or the way things happen in the world. And Elie Wiesel, you know, has, uh, imagine what he wrote, you, you know, how he's written. And, you know, and, and so the question happens in one of his novels, so, so where was your God at Auschwitz, right? And Elie Wiesel's answer is God was in heaven weeping, right? That there's this wonderful poem by Rabbi Maggie Wenig uh, in our prayer book, um, I think, in our high holiday prayer book that has God as, an old woman sitting at a kitchen table waiting for us to come home every Rosh Hashanah, every Yom Kippur, right? That God's waiting for us to be the ones to show up, to, to, res- to respond, to, to be ready to see, to see God in those human beings who are suffering that we need to go and help to give our resources to help. We set out an e-blast from KI that's about, you know, we need to help in materially in the ways that we can. And so that is a response for me that's about what am I called into as a person who's a, that I feel is a religious obligation. It's not just the right thing to do. It's a religious obligation for me. As a convert who didn't do it for the hubby. (laughs) Did. Oh, sorry, did not. No, did not do it for the hubby. Did it because I uh, feel like I was going back to my roots. Um, and chose reconstructionism, really wanted, like, this was my philosophy. What I loved the most about it was um, that God gets to be whatever I want God to be on any day. And I can believe in God today and not tomorrow. I don't have to. And I can come here and say it out loud, and you're not going to hit my fingers and tell me that. <laughs> and you're not going to... Uh, for that. Uh, for that. <laughs> for something else you might, but, but not for that. And what I love about the being Jewish is, of course, all the traditions and all of that. But it, it to me, it's like the most rational... Um, form of religion I can give my child is this is when 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 um, you know one of the founders of this congregation would tell me um, she would sit there and say you know I was the first one the founders blah, blah, blah. and she would always say reconstructionism is not a religion we are an ever evolving movement and she kept she would repeat this over and over and she said that was she had dementia, so it was like, <laughs> I got to hear that a lot every week. So, Kaplan, and, that we are an evolving religious civilization goes to the point that it is not primarily a religion. It is a religious civilization. So not having grown up religious, Kaplan would say, so what? Like, right, you know, that... Jewish is Jewish, right? That, you know, that, that we're part of a civilization with our own unique history, our worldview that comes out of that history. In our case, empathy with the underdog, you know, and the oppressed always from the time of the Torah through the Holocaust, you know, post-Holocaust. So, you know, that, that our art, our music, our food, the smells that go along with every holiday, right? I hate being in this building because I don't eat breakfast. I hate being here after I'm teaching Torah study here, you know, come join me, um, 9.45, right? I'm teaching, then I teach again, and the smell of that challah, I walk out of here going, it's just torture, right? But that is, that is, that is as Jewish as any Mishabayach, any prayer you want to say, right? That those are, those are deeply Jewish experiences, and those are enriching experiences about belonging to you know, a civilization, a culture. Friday, if we forget to pick up that holiday, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Like, cry, scream, something the hood. Oh, yeah. It is like, it is. But the Friday. That's a Jewish experience, though. Right. But the Shabbos has a... to have that connection. The experience of, of having the challah. I would say I was raised a, a lot like men. In my experience of Judaism, I literally feel like altar image. Right? It was. It was. I grew up in reform. And the two most interesting things that you said for me were language, or the Talmudic interpretation, giving our children the ability to articulate, debate, formulate ideas, 
and and because your view of Judaism, your Jewish identity, your Jewish experience changes throughout your life, depending on your age, depending on the experiences. I tend often not to believe in a external higher power being that I can control and self-direct. Uh, but I have to say that in times of stress, I oftentimes turn to language about God, about a higher being. And it's, it's interesting in your study that, that that's where I tend to go to because I had language growing up in my Jewish experience. People didn't say you must believe in God and here's how you should believe in God, but they helped formulate language and, and give me the ability to debate and expose and learn and teach myself to learn about that and find those paths for me. And then the other one is the idea of experience, right? You experience God, you experience love. You don't, you don't necessarily tell people what they are. You experience those things. And when you have the language and you have the experiences, you can find words to sort of put to those experiences and develop that identity for yourself within a broader construct of your experiences. I am Jewish because I was raised Jewish. I guess if I had all the other experiences but I was raised Christian, I'd say the same thing sitting in a room amongst a bunch of Christians. I'm Christian because I'm Christian, but to me that's a set of experiences and language to debate it over and over and over again. So depending on the beautifully articulated. I'm just going to pick on that last thing you said on purpose. It is a little different than Christianity because I am a Christian means... I believe in a creed, right? That then makes me a Christian, and and the and I'm not I'm not lifting it up as a good or bad thing. I'm saying to be Jewish, you don't need to believe anything, right? What you know is you have language for compassion, for respect, for and we have practices around that, and we have songs around that, and we have blessings around that, and we have all that. So it doesn't mean. There's a there's no creed that goes along with that, and the, the, and the reason I make that distinction is because too often people go to, but we we were just Jewish, right? We weren't religious. We were just Jewish, and it's like, why is there a just there? Because too often we equate being Jewish with with Judaism as a creed, you know, as a belief rather than as a as a religious civilization of which I'm a member, no matter what I do or don't do. Right, no matter how many of those practices I do or don't do, or what I believe or what I don't, I'm still a member of the Jewish people, and I'm still a part of that, and informed by, shaped by, you know, and respond to the world through the lens of that religious civilization. So I'm happy to stay for a few minutes and talk, but I know a lot of you are tired, and I want to be very respectful of your time. Um, and so I want to thank you once again for taking the time to be here and for sharing.